0: Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. And we are joined now on the line by Seth Berger, who's Managing Director of the Sixers Innovation Lab and the former founder and CEO of AND1. Seth, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Carl. Good evening.
0: So I was looking at your bio, and you are a graduate, and you graduated from the college or at, at Penn, and then a gra- you graduated from the Wharton School in 93, three months before I showed up. So I don't think we crossed paths in the classroom.
1: That's right, and if we had, you would certainly not have remembered me because I was not memorable as a student.
0: Yeah, you're working on some other venture on the side, as, as, as I can infer from the bio. I was. I I, I I tell you, I learned so much at Wharton. Uh,
1: I had come from politics. I'd worked uh, down on Capitol Hill for two years as legislative director to Harold Ford Sr. When I went back to Wharton, quite frankly, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. After about the first week, I was convinced that God had destined me to be an investment banker. After about the second week, I was convinced that God had destined me to be a consultant. And then when I started interviewing for my first year of summer jobs, um, the investment bankers and the consultants made it pretty clear that God hadn't destined me, destined me for either of those paths. Ah. Uh, so so I, I came to entrepreneurship the old-fashioned way, which is I was really having a hard time finding a, a job. Um, but uh, you know, in my two years of school, I learned so much. There was a professor who you might have crossed paths with, uh, Miles Bass, who has since passed away. Um, I didn't know him. Yeah. Yeah. So he taught Introduction to Entrepreneurship and Small Business. It was a course that I'd taken my second semester of my first year. And he was uh, both inspirational to my heart, but also really spoke to the logic of why MBAs should consider being entrepreneurs right out of school uh, and really never would have found this path were not for Warden and for him.
0: And this was before that was actually something people did this was not a trend at the time in 1993.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, then back then it was the Snyder center. Yeah. And I don't know the stat is a hundred percent true, but what I was told was two people out of 800 of my class, when we graduated, went right into start our own businesses. Another yeah. uh, kid had started a wine business, which ended up being super successful, but the opportunity cost then was so high. Yeah. And with technology not being what it is today businesses quite frankly just took so much longer to get going that you knew your first 3 to 5 years you were going to make a whole lot less money than if you had gone to work for uh, for somebody else
0: yeah well that has has certainly changed it's it's i think up around 50 out of that class of 800 now so a dramatic imp- uh, increase in the number of people that, that now do entrepreneurship
1: yeah it's uh, amazing I, I go back and speak every year to school yeah. and For a while, I had actually stopped because I felt like I was wasting my time and theirs trying to inspire kids to let them know that if I could have made a moderately successful business out of grad school, that they certainly could. (laughs) And then in the last few years, it's been really clear that when I'm speaking to the entrepreneurial classes, you know, three kids come would come up, you know, in the old talks to say thanks very much, who were thinking about doing their business, and 20 kids would say thanks for speaking. Well, now like 20 kids are coming up and thinking, saying thanks and can I get some real
0: advice because I'm really considering starting my own business, which is fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. So I'm, I really want to focus our segment really on the life journey of an entrepreneur because it's really fascinating. Your story is fascinating, but let's very quickly go back to and one. So and one was founded, if I can believe Wikipedia in 1993 uh, with a slogan, all ball, nothing more. So tell us a little bit about the origin story for and one. Sure. So I was, in my second year of
1: grad school, I had done an advanced study project at Wharton. The hypothesis was that there were millions of consumers in the U.S. who loved basketball, who spent billions of dollars at places like Foot Locker and Foot Action on companies like Nike and Reebok's products. And we were actually going to start, believe it or not, a database basketball business. And, in fact, when I graduated on May 17, 1993, uh, the company that I started was the And one database marketing business. huh. Uh, I had two partners. One was a warden undergrad. His name is Tom Austin. He had a 3.96 GPA and and never studied. And he is still today the smartest person I've ever met. And probably the second or third smartest person I've ever met was my best friend from home, Jay Gilbert, who had gone to Stanford, worked at McKinsey, and was working in the city. So the three of us embarked on the and one database marketing business. Uh, At the time, I was living downtown in Old City, which is not the old city of today. Um, and was paying 100 bucks a month rent. (laughs) And we went out to a trade show in Chicago. And this is actually the origin of, of, and one, the apparel company, which became an apparel and footwear company. So we went out to a trade show in Chicago to basically pitch companies on why they should pay us to help them acquire users. This was, by the way, one of the very few classes where I got a very good grade when I was in grad school. So, of course, every company said, This is a terrible idea. We have no interest in the N1 database marketing business. And sorry you came out here dressed up in suits. We're all, you know, (laughs) casually at a sports convention, right? We were 25, 25, and 21 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. But at the the trade show, we saw apparel. There were a number of small apparel companies that were just kind of bubbling up in the basketball space that were niche companies. And we thought we could make better product that we thought – spoke to the basketball consumer and we understood our consumer better than they did. And so true story, we were in a Chicago pizza shop and we had our pitch books. We dumped our pitch books in the trash and we came up with slogans on the small pizza place napkins that my partner Jay still has framed today. And those slogans were, here's $5, go buy a game. I'm the bus driver. I take everyone to school and slogans like that. And that was literally how we started our company, six weeks later. I grew up in New York City. So we you know how to home. talk
0: trash already.
1: Yeah, yeah pretty yeah. much.
0: <laughs> I'm a much better –
1: I was a much better talker than I was a player. I played a year at <laughs> JV Basketball at Penn, and people would probably remember me talking much more than they would remember me scoring. Hmm. Um, so I went back home to 125th Street and you know, started selling T-shirts and shorts to retailers, and that was basically the genesis of And One. What I would say, though – and I think this is a lesson that really applies to any of the businesses that we invested at Sixers Lab. Is we understood our consumer because we were we basically were consumers. Mm. We were selling product to 16-year-old ball players, and at the time we were 25, young enough to understand and be passionate about, and then take that understanding and passion about this game of basketball and turn it into product that was meaningful uh, to a consumer. So we got very lucky. We initially started with uh, Dr. J's, which is a big chain in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then we got into Foot Locker in our very first spring. So we went from basically zero in 93 to 1.7 million in revenues in 94. Then we did just under six in 95, then 14. And before we knew it, we were north of 50 million bucks in revenues.
0: But, um, the, but but Seth, let me just interrupt you. So, But the that initial revenue was in T-shirts? You didn't correct. get into footwear. Okay, so when did you get into footwear? So in 96. So we had been in T-shirts. So the first year we did T-shirts, basically
1: spring of 94 is when we mm-hmm. launched with retailers, right? Then in spring of 95, we launched what was then called the Game Short. It was a super successful product. And then in 96, we, we kind of realized – halfway through 95, that if we were going to be a sizable brand, apparel just wasn't big enough. Yeah, And so we needed to make a switch to footwear as quickly as we could before the consumer only saw us as an apparel brand and then wouldn't accept our brand, quite frankly, on their feet. So we took a very big risk. Uh, We signed a kid named Stefan Marbury, who was at a Georgia Tech. Uh, We signed him to a long-term endorsement deal, gave him a lot of guaranteed money. And basically took a bet um, that we were going to be able to, transit, to transition to shoes. Initially, it was an unbelievable disaster, Carl, to the point where yeah. I thought we were going bankrupt. So here's a story yeah. that, like, the first November when we launched our shoes, we were launching our shoes, about to hit stores like early December. It was the the Marbury one. We had done a two million dollar ad buy in ESPN. We had done a I think a. Hundred thousand dollar promotional campaign of the Minnesota Timberwolves that included giving away twenty thousand T-shirts at the Target Center with a picture of Stefan Marbury, and the campaign was called "Breaking Ankles with Stefan Marbury." <laughs> that was that would be basically when someone would cross you up, you would break you would break your ankle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So about six minutes into the game, Steph and and we, Jay and I are sitting at the end of the Timberwolves bench. They've given us these great front row seats, and Stefan, who was the number four pick in the draft that year, he comes down, makes a crossover, goes up for a layup, and lands on a guy named Cadillac Anderson's foot. He sprains his ankle so badly, they carry him off the court, sit him right next to me and Jay. Oh. He's basically crying, and we've given away 20,000 t-shirts to say, Breaking Ankles with Stefan Marbury, and he basically broke his ankle. Oh. But at this point, we have $7 million in shoes on the water that were pre-sold to retailers. <laughs> and I called my CFO that night and my director of PR, and I was like, I think we're about to be bankrupt because none of our retailers are going to take these shoes because this kid just hurt his ankle wearing a brand-new sneaker company shoes. And lo and behold, our retailers supported us. And in fact, their shoes sold, and then the Marbury 2 sold, and before you knew it, we were, but we're an apparel company, not just an apparel company. But we yeah. were
0: very, very lucky. Yeah. So there was one, one interesting uh, story that I that I'd heard about secondhand about that that journey where you had a breakthrough approach using mixtapes. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that because that was this was pre, you know, this wasn't you couldn't go on YouTube and and, and do viral marketing. So you had to figure out how to how to get the word out in a scrappy viral way pre YouTube. Tell us about that. That's right. So, you know, like
1: most good business ideas, the entrepreneurs rarely came up with them. It was usually someone else's inspiration, right? Mm. Um, but we just happened to be really good at listening. We had a meeting with our ad agency, our entire marketing team, and this was um, in 1998. We, At this time, we had about 50 to 60 NBA players under contract wearing our shoes, and our brand was growing really quickly. We had sponsored... The Rucker Tournament, which is a you know a really well-known tournament in New York City, and for sponsoring it, we basically got to videotape the game and, and put the players in our t-shirts and shorts. Well, this game had some of the best collection of playground players who ended up being uh, either pros or high division ones. In some cases, European pros. Uh, Ray Feralston, known as Skip DeMaloo, was the best player in this game. But it was an amazing basically 40 minutes of basketball. Mm -hmm. So a 25-year-old kid who was working at our agency out of Miami says, hey, listen, you know, you guys have grown up in New York City, so you have seen this type of basketball. But people outside the city probably haven't seen this. We should put this to music and create a mixtape and just call it the n mixtape, and we should just give away the tapes, and it will really help grow your brand and and." and expose this type of basketball to people all over the country who might not know it. So we said, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. Little do we know. We dropped 50,000 tapes at Foot Action on a Friday that following November. All you had to do was try on a pair of One shoes to get the tape. By Sunday, every single tape was gone. Wow! And it was the single fastest promotion Foot Action had ever had. And so then from there, um, the mixtape kind of grew in and of itself, in fact into a full fledged thirty city tour with along with fifteen international cities and a TV show called Streetball, the Amin Mixtape Tour. Here was the crazy thing. In two thousand or two thousand and one, the folks who were running the mixtape tour for me showed me a stat that Streetball was the number one show among male teens on ESPN. And I said you mean next to Sports Center? And they <laughs> said, no, it's the number one rated show among male teens on ESPN. Um, and it just, you know, it grew and grew. We had a lot of people making very good decisions on our team about what to do with the asset. But quite frankly, the players were so fantastic. I mean, you had guys like Skip DeMalue, Main Event, Half Man, Half yeah. Amazing, A.O., you know, Hot Sauce, The Professor. These guys were great, and they just captivated people in a way that that they hadn't seen basketball been played before
0: yeah if you're just joining us you're listening to launchpad on business radio powered by the Wharton School and this is Carl Lork and I'm speaking with Seth Berger who is former founder and CEO of and one uh Seth so so I want to make a transition here you this was a a great success and and, you know, not that there weren't tons of ups and downs, including a near bankruptcy, but in 2005, you sold the business. And then you made, to my, to my eyes, a pretty unexpected life change. Tell us about that transition.
1: That's a great way to put it, actually. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the word enough. And when I'm speaking with uh, business school students and they say, well, how do you decide when to sell your business? One piece of advice I always give them is, When you start your business, you should put a number on a piece of paper. And back then it would be put it in your closet, and today it would be put it somewhere in your phone. Mm -hmm. And if someone ever offers you that amount of money for your business, you have to have an unbelievable reason not to take it. And it can't just be because you want more. So I'm a big fan of the word enough, but not such a big fan of the word more. So basically what happened is in 2005 – Someone came along and said, we had sold a small piece of the business in 1999 to a venture capital firm. And then in 2005, we sold the rest. And uh, I had what I thought at that point was enough to go make a difference with my life. Um, You know, and one, we were basically a bunch of not-for-profit guys who happened to be in business. So we used to give away millions of dollars. In fact, we gave away over $2 million away to youth-based charities when we were running and one. It was part of our charter. Um, so the two things I've always wanted to do with my life is, one, have fun, and two, make a difference. So I thought when we sold the business, I had an, opp- had an opportunity to do both, and that is in the form of coaching high school basketball at the West Town School. So we got very lucky. My kids attend the West Town School. Uh, I have all attended it since pre-K. One has graduated. Two are still there. It's this amazing community, Quaker School, about 40 minutes west of the city, um, and they offered me the opportunity to coach. I started as an assistant for two years and then became the head coach and i've now finished twelve years uh, as a head coach and it, for me it 's the most fun way to make a difference in the world is to coach young men in the sport of basketball so i 've been doing that for for quite some time and I had done some businesses on a part time basis, but really felt that um, you know that part of my life was now dedicated to making a difference
0: yeah well i I now realize I have seen you before. Uh, you guys put the hurt on uh, my kids several times who played at Friend Central. Uh, during that <laughs> turn, during <that> <laughs> uh, yep. But I didn't know that well, was listen, you. Uh,
1: their yeah. old coach, uh, so Jason Polikoff. Yeah, Jason, terrific four, guy. He just came back as the head coach again.
0: Oh uh, wow! And wow. Uh,
1: yeah, so we used to we used to have these great battles. He had a great run. He won four yeah. state titles. Yeah.
0: Terrific uh, guy. Yeah. yeah, Terrific guy. Terrific school. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's fantastic. (laughs) So, um, but let me just ask you about that. So, so you were, um, so, so you never, uh, what's the right way to ask it? it? It, 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 in terms of identities and status, it, 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 how, how big a role did your prior business success play for you? Was that what enabled you to be a high school basketball coach? Or was it the intrinsic joy of what you were doing that was enough to propel you?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I, I think really the desire for a combination of learning um, and making a contribution. So I would say that in my first Four years of coaching, I would spend six to eight hours a day, either watching DVDs, reading books, or attending high school and college practices, mm-hmm. to try to get up to the learning up the learning curve as quickly as I can, as I could. Quite frankly, no different than when starting a business. You know, anytime you're starting a new venture, I think the the first period of time is really crucial. Either you're going to move forward really quickly, and you know, acquire information and improve really quickly you just kinda of, kinda of flounder along. So I think this intensity that is required, the sense of urgency that is required for entrepreneurs whenever they're starting their businesses, and quite frankly, until their businesses are done, is the same kind of intensity that's required if someone wants to be um, a head coach that's making a difference for his for his athletes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, you know, I loved basketball so and one was easy for me to come to every day for work. Right, like that was it yeah. was a labor of love, and the same thing. I love basketball, and I love coaching kids. So I think that those two things really are, are parallel to me.
0: Yeah. Well, we we got about four minutes, and I want to make sure I give you a chance to to tell us about the last transition. So tell us about the most recent transition. Your kids graduated. You you moved on to a new role, and so give us the pitch for the Sixers Innovation Lab and and how you got into it. Yeah.
1: yeah so Scott O'Neill and I have been super close since 1994. He was literally selling sponsorships at my first trade show with And One. He was working for the Nets, and he used to help sneak me into Brendan Burn Arena to give away t-shirts to the NBA players playing hmm. back then. Um, we remained close for years. We did a business together in the late 90s called Hoopstv.com. It was an, an internet failure. Um, and then he called me basically in 2016. I was thinking about buying a business. Like I said, my kids were older at the time. They were 17, 14, and 12, and they had basically had enough time with me. (laughs) So I had some extra hours in the day all of a sudden. And Scott called and said, hey, we're going to start an innovation lab. Would you like to run it? I told him, quite frankly, I didn't know what an innovation lab was because I'd been coaching high school basketball for quite some time, but would love to learn about it. And it turned out to be this amazing opportunity to basically coach entrepreneurs You know, with the resources that Josh Harris and David Blitzer have, the connections that Scott O'Neill has, and I think, you know, the operational experience that I have, we have an opportunity to make a difference for early stage businesses, in some cases, seed, some cases, early stage. uh, And we try to combine their resources, my operational background and capital. So we'll invest up to a million dollars in up to six deals a year. Uh, and we focus on technology, sports, esports, sports gambling, really most consumer facing businesses um, that employ technology in some way. So, some of our successes are U.GG, which is an esports company, um, Hydrant, which is a hydration product, Live Life Nice, which is actually a media company slash apparel company selling gear at Foot Locker now, um, have been great. We've invested in seven deals. On paper in three years we have a 10x return on capital. this is the most fun I could ever imagine having in business um, because I get to coach multiple athletes if you will, mm-hmm. CEOs and management you know teams of their companies um, and I don't uh, and, and I get to basically root for all of them um, and continue learning about something new because I have never done venture before. So I get to have this whole brand new experience that I never had before. And quite frankly, supported by the Sixers and Josh and David, you know, they've given me everything I need to to make the Sixers Innovation Lab successful.
0: Yeah. Well, I literally have one minute, Um, but you're located in a a fairly disadvantaged area, Camden, New Jersey. Um, Has that played a role in terms of what you're doing? Well, I think the
1: Sixers... And Josh and David, in general, want to make a difference in the community. You know, yeah. when they decided to build this corporate offices over here, part of it was part of being part of the revitalization, revitalization, excuse me, of Camden. So, as you know, Campbell Soup is here, mm-hmm. and there are a number of companies that are trying to build Camden back up, and we're absolutely happy to be part of that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a terrific story. And I want to make a give a shout out to Josh Harris as well, who's, who's uh, one of our overseers at the Wharton School. So it's uh, very much a, a Wharton family. Um, Seth, it's really an inspiring story. And I'm really glad we had this chance to talk about the entrepreneurial journey, not just about a particular company, but the arc of, of an entrepreneurial career. And I'm confident that there's more to come. So thanks so much for making the time and for joining us.
1: Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Take care.
0: All right, so uh, to, to learn more about the Sixers Innovation Lab, you just go to SixersInnovationLab.com. Uh, it's an incubator and accelerator located in Camden, New Jersey, and it has a bunch of great resources, and you can learn about more about it online. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from seven to nine p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.